you don't necessarily get to go or you don't necessarily get to be like, oh, I want to live in Atlanta, Georgia, or I want to live in, you know, (laughs) Durham, North Carolina. You just basically have to be like, where (laughs) on this giant USA map has a place that is willing to take uh, to file for me, to file for my visa, to file for my work visa and my green card. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another amazing story to add to our immigrant human library, and it's that of my friend Kara Kijo and uh, Authentic Marriages. And so we're happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yes, this is so much fun. I love doing these. And to open, I would like to give you a chance to tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, your family heritage, and so forth. Yes. So I am Cara. I was born and raised in the island of Trinidad. And I am a licensed clinical social worker, therapist, and I specialize in couples therapy and individuals with trauma. And I have two kids and I'm married to a Jamaican and two kids. They, they were born in the U.S. ages eight and 10. Wonderful. And is there a story behind what brings you to the U.S., you and your husband? Yes. So I came to the U.S. in 2003. I came as a student. I worked real. I was 22 years old. So I started college when most people graduate college. At 22, I was a freshman in Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina. I was awarded a full scholarship to attend that school. And I essentially spent probably from age 17 trying really, really, really hard to get a scholarship because that was that was sort of the only way that I knew how to get to the States. I had seen other friends in my community get scholarships and I know my 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 family didn't have any money to send me to send me to college or to send me abroad. And so because I saw them, you know, getting full scholarships, I was like, how did you guys like do this? And they told me they wrote SAT and they got a good enough score that gave them a scholarship. But I spent about five years trying to get a quote unquote a good enough score. <laughs> to get a scholarship. So I wrote SAT five times over that five-year period. And I remember like at one point I I gave up. Like at one point, I like I think it was like the fourth time when I wrote SAT, I got the same exact score like the third time. And then I was just like, okay, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to get a scholarship. I felt really defeated. I literally like laid in my bed and cried. And I was just, you know, like, God, like, why, you know, is this so hard? Like, why can't I? I'm trying really. I I couldn't believe that I made the same score after studying really hard. And 
eventually I picked myself back up (laughs) after a couple of months and I started studying again. And I went to this in Trinidad. We had this like SAT school. It was like a school that just provided SAT lessons and they would help as part of their package, they would help place students or help them apply to schools in the U.S. And so I remember going to this place because I was I was just throwing everything that I could, like books, lessons, tutoring, anything that could just help me to increase my score. And I remember going to this place and seeing the flags of different schools that their students got scholarships to. Now, I didn't know anything about these schools. I had no clue what, you know, what was, you know, what was laying for me, right? I just saw like a bunch of different schools, Morgan State, Howard University, um, Virginia Union, just all these random schools that I didn't know anything about. I didn't even know what an HBCU was. And uh, I remember just taking note of all of those schools that were on the wall and applying myself to those schools because I think they only as part of the program, they only helped you with like four schools. And I probably applied to like 20 something schools based on what I saw on the wall of the different schools that they had gotten scholarships for, but I had no money to apply to these schools. (laughs) So I wrote a letter with every scholarship application. I wrote a letter and I said, you know, dear admissions officer, My name is Cara. I come from Trinidad and Tobago and I do not have any money to pay for the application fee. Please waive the application fee, but consider me for a full scholarship. I would like to be considered for a full scholarship. And I wrote that letter to all the schools that I applied to. And one school wrote back, I remember it was South Carolina State and they gave me like a partial scholarship, which I couldn't take because I was like, where would I have the other half to pay for? Because even if you got 20,000 US, to pay for school and you still had to pay 10,000 US is like, I didn't even have $50, right? So I definitely couldn't have paid the 10,000 US. And as an international student, we don't qualify for federal grants or loans or student loans like regular American citizens. So loans weren't an option either. And so one day, and so I had I had applied to all these 20 schools. I had, you know, not really heard back from most of them. And I started working in the bank in Trinidad. I was working, this was like now January of 20 of 2003. And I right. started working in the bank and I was just like, okay, I guess, you know, I'm I'm kind of like moving on with life, right? Like I'm still, you know, just living in Trinidad, moving on with life struggling to get you know to get to get accepted to get a full scholarship and as years went by it was harder and harder to get scholarships because the score that you had to get in SAT was higher and higher so back in 20 when I was 17 so um, that might have been 1998 it was 1100 out of 1600 to get a full scholarship by the time we got to 2000 2003 it was like 1300 1400 to get a full scholarship so it was like almost an you had to get almost like a near perfect score to get a full scholarship but the last SAT that I took I got 1340 and I was like this is it finally I made the score I'm gonna get the scholarship and then crickets like nothing 
nobody <laughs> responded. And I was just like, oh my God, like finally I get the score after like five years and then nothing. And so I had basically in my heart given up and I started working in the bank, which I hated <laughs> because working in the bank is a very, very stressful job. And I remember not being able to like balance at the end of the day and making all these mistakes. And I was like overwhelmed. And so that was happening. And then about, let me say, I think it was like July of that year of 2003, out of nowhere, I get an, a letter from Benedict College, just out of the blue. I wasn't, it was, it was out of sight, out of mind. It was no longer on my radar. I was just like defeated at that point. And then Benedict, they, I read the letter and it said, you know, we are awarding you a, a trustees club scholarship, which covers room, board, books, tuition. And I was like, who is Benedict? Because because remember, I didn't know these schools, right? So I was like... I had chills. I had chills. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was like, who is Benedict? Because remember, I just saw these flags. So I didn't even know where Benedict was, what kind of school it was. You know, I hadn't done any research into these schools. I just applied on a whim. And there I was, July 2003 and the start date was like the first week in August so it was a quick turnaround time just to like end my job pack two suitcases like I came to the U.S. with two suitcases and I remember flying into New York and then flying into I think it was Atlanta and then from Atlanta a friend picked me up and drove me to Columbia which was about a three-hour drive and I, it, and it was like, I didn't come, I, I think about it now and I'm like, this is so crazy because you leave your country, but you also are coming to a new country kind of unprepared. Like I didn't have like, you know, like nowadays, like I see college students and their moms and their dads are like showing up and packing them in their dorms and they're buying their comforter sets and, you know, decorating their dorms. And I was like, I didn't have any of that. I didn't have a sheet. I didn't have a blanket. I didn't have anything to like cover my bed with. And thank God for this friend because he took me to Walmart. Again, I didn't know anything about Walmart. He took me to Walmart and I was able to buy things that I didn't even think of <laughs> to, 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 to go to school with, like a sheet to put on the bed or, you know, simple things like that. Like I didn't even... And I didn't even have anybody to tell me that that's something that I needed to come to school with or to have. I didn't have adult people like I didn't have adult parents coming with me to move me in. So I was kind of like riding solo in the great USA and, and thank God for friends, you know, to just kind of help you cross over that divide because you don't know what you don't know, you know, until you until you get there. Gosh, and so many people walk that journey. They have a dream and aspiration. They want to study abroad and they select the US and um, but they don't know how to do it. And you just kept trying and an opportunity opened up and then you're like, you still don't know or, or have anybody on the side to instruct you. And so that's why we exist, because we're telling these stories for other people listening to be able to say you know, do some research today. Luckily, there's the internet, social media, there's so much available. But I know years ago, 
when we didn't have so much online for people to just have at their fingertips, you know, but when my family moved myself, I left after high school. I didn't know much either. I didn't know what, where to go to school for the first part. I had my transcripts. I have paperwork, but I didn't even know where to go get stuff evaluated and that I could have gone straight into a four-year college, but I applied to a two-year to get credits to move on to a four-year. But I think I, I didn't even realize I could go directly yeah. to to a four-year college. And I had taken the PSATs when I was in high school and I had scores and I remember getting letters from universities and I don't even know why I didn't use that opportunity. Wow. I Today, I'm like, why didn't I just tap one of those universities to see if I would have gotten a scholarship straight into you know, a four-year college? But I didn't know any better. You know, I was young. I was, try- I was excited and just coming and doing the next thing, trying to figure it out. But I didn't have guidance either. So international students and people who are listening, like, guys, tap your friends, ask questions, try to get a little bit ahead of the game and get more details about what you're getting into before, you know, because it can be challenging, Yeah, you know, stepping out like that, the being the first one too, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I I say thank God for friends because it was, think about it. It was like friends who I saw from Trinidad just going away to school. Like they got a scholarship and they just went away. And I was just like, how are y'all doing this? Like, (laughs) you know, because we didn't know, like nobody was like sharing this information widely for us to even know that there was a pathway to get to us. So it was Mm -hmm. because I saw them that I asked, but if, if they weren't in my circle, I wouldn't have had anybody to ask. Like I wouldn't even have anybody to 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 say how how do you get to a scholarship to the US from, you know, a Caribbean country or some other country outside of the US, you know? Like we would we don't know and we don't know what we don't know. And I think a lot of us we end up struggling too because there's so much resources that we don't know about. Right? And then as an immigrant there's so much hoops and loops that we have to jump through. And we really don't have the guidance. Like I didn't even know about like social security numbers. I didn't know, you know, about like needing to apply for that and having to build credit and all of those things. And it was friends in school who were like, okay, this is what you do. These were all the international students. So like whenever some, a new international student came in, they were like, okay, you need to go and get your social security number. And then you need to, you know, go and see if you get your driver's license and then you need to go and do open a bank account and all these like simple things, but you couldn't open a bank account without your social security number. And so it was like little things like that, where we just didn't know, especially me, I just didn't know. I didn't have that guidance except from people who were in the school. And I think we need to also be brave to ask, you know, like we can't be shy to ask people, how did you do that? How did you get there? How did you achieve X, Y, Z? And how can, how can I do it too? Like, wh- where do I start? And it was the same thing for grad school because I still didn't have any money, <laughs> you know, coming into the US and being able to go to school. I had, you know, everything paid for, but that didn't mean that I I had money now that I arrived, right? Like I was still, <laughs> I was still sort of like in the same position. Thankfully, I had, you know, the major things paid for, 
But in terms of when it came to grad school, I was in the same boat. So I still needed to find a scholarship to grad school. I still needed to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I take the, because I'm still international. I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm not a U.S. resident. And the same rules apply. Like we can't get loans. We can't get federal grants. We can't, you know, we don't have access to federal funding. And a lot of Americans don't know that, right? Like they don't know that we don't have the same access to resources that they do. And one of the things that I remember in college, like I couldn't work. The only jobs that we could get as an international student on an F1 visa was a job on campus, right? So we couldn't say, okay, let's go work at McDonald's. Let's go work at a restaurant. Let's go work outside of the school because that would be considered illegal. And so the only jobs available were on campus jobs. But then there were no on-campus jobs available <laughs> because once somebody got in a job, it's like, that was it. Like they stayed, there was only literally two options, the bookstore. I remember it was the bookstore and I think it was um, some some other place, like one of the one of the private cafeterias, not even the regular cafeteria. And there were two international students that were already in those jobs. So there were no jobs for the rest of us because all the other jobs were work study, which is paid <laughs> by either federal or state funds. And so we couldn't even like work to make money. So when it came time for grad school, I was pretty much in the same boat. I was like, OK, grad school. <laughs> um, I'm like trying to apply to these schools. And actually, it's a little bit harder to get funding for grad school than it is for undergrad. But I same thing. I saw the international students getting scholarships to different schools. I remember people getting scholarships to Ohio State University, to Georgia Southern University. So I saw people still getting scholarships. So I was like, okay, there's a way. And so it's that same type of like curiosity that I used to, to try to figure out grad school. And I remember by that time in, in college, I was... So when I came to the U.S., I was already dating my now husband and he lived in Jamaica, but he went to school in Texas. Um, and so he was already in America before I came to America. And so when I got to South Carolina, he was in North Carolina. And so by the time I was about to graduate, we got engaged the year before I graduated and then got married the year I graduated, like right after I graduated in May, I got married in June 06, 2006. And I remember, you know, trying to apply to the grad schools in North Carolina, because that's where he was going to school. He was going to med school in North Carolina. And I didn't get through because for the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, they had a rule that their scholarships could not be given to international students. Really? Wow. Yes. So I got, you know, I didn't get the scholarship. So I started working, you know, after as an international student, you're given OPT, which is like one year to work. And so then the next best thing that you can do is find a job within your field. My field was social work. So find a job within your field and in that one year, because you have a work permit for one year, and in that one year, try to convince your employer 
to file your for your work visa right so that you can continue to stay and this is like a roll of the dice right because when you think about it <laughs> you're like you know I, I'm just going to apply to all, you know, you're just like everybody else in the pool applying to jobs right out of undergrad. And you're applying to, to these random places and hoping that you first get hired. Then after you get hired, you have to broach the subject at some point within that year to tell your employer like, hey, in order for me to continue working for you, I would need you to apply for my H-1B visa. And what you have to do in that, like, say, first six months is, like, work your butt off. Like, you have to be the best employee they ever saw. So that by the time you broach that topic, they're like, well, we can't lose Kara, you know, because she is so good. And and, and so we know this going in from, you know, just kind of like other other people, other international students who went before. But again, it's the roll of the dice, right? Because you don't know what they'll say. They could say no. They could just be like, why would we go through this extra? It's not only hassling. It is. It costs money for them to file for your for your work visa. Um, and it's an extra hassle. And it's time consuming. Why would we do that when we could just hire another U.S. citizen easily, right? Um, so I remember my first job right out of undergrad was with Big Brothers Big Sisters in North Carolina, Big Brothers Big Sisters of the Triangle, which was right in Durham where um, my husband was going to school. So it was a great, perfect job, you know, first job out of college, but then begin the next task of like convincing them, okay, like I am there on a time clock because I literally, my, my, my card started when you graduated. So I think it was like, if you graduated me, you have like a whole year from when you graduated. And I got that job in September. So I was like already like three months out of my out of my one year. Like I'm already negative three months before I even start. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm gonna and you have to tell them well enough in advance because there's a deadline every year. Every year there's a deadline to to apply for this visa. Yes. So about six months into me working with Big Brothers Big Sisters, I remember talking to my supervisor and like nervously, anxiously having this conversation because I don't know if she will say, you know, what she will do, what she will think. And thankfully, you know, she was open, like she was open. And then she went to the CEO and like explained everything. They had no idea what a work visa was, right? Like, they were a small nonprofit agency. It was maybe like 20, 20 of us that were employed from the top to the bottom, right? So it wasn't a big company. So they didn't have like, and it's a nonprofit. So, so on top of that, they didn't really have the no, the insight of, of the land of work visas. So I had to do a lot of educating to like help them understand what is a work visa, why we need a work visa um the complexities of of getting a work visa i had contacted a lawyer in north carolina to kind of give me some guidance into how to apply for the work visa but because it was expensive um even just hiring a lawyer is expensive right <laughs> and i didn't have again like a lot of resources my husband being in medical school and then i'm working here for a nonprofit i like read as much as I could have read like everything that I could have read and I did it on my own which is crazy like I, I don't necessarily recommend people doing that 
you know, I do recommend you getting a lawyer to help you to make sure that, you know, you cross your T's and dot your I's. But in the in the space of not being able to like pay for something, I'm like determined to figure it out. So I will read every article there is online. I would read Reddit or whatever, you know, like chat thing that people have out there to tell you like how to do this. And I would figure it out, you know. And so that's what I did. And they graciously went through the process with me. And I was able to get a work visa for the first three years. And then we reapplied again and got it for the second three years. So I was able to stay with them for an entire like seven years, which was the entire time that we were, my husband and I were in North Carolina. So by the time I, my work visa ended, he had um, graduated from his residency program and was about to start like his first real job as a doctor. So everything kind of like aligned perfectly in, in that way. But while I was at Big Brothers Big Sisters, I remember thinking, I still want to go to grad school. Like I still want to, you know, get an advanced degree. And I'm like, but none of these schools want to give us a scholarship. Right. And I'm still in the non-US, non-resident category. Right. So even though I'm on a work visa, I'm still an international immigrant. Right. Like I'm, I don't I still don't have access to these loans. I still don't have access to these federal grants or scholarships. And remember, UNC was like, well, we have a rule that we don't give our scholarships, even though it's, it's their money, like private money. We don't give yeah. it to international students. So one day. I said, you know what, Cara, remember when you were, I, I, when I started the, the whole five-year SAT journey, I was 17 when I started and I didn't get through until I was 22. And at 17 years old, you wrote these big universities telling them that you didn't have any money and to please consider you for a scholarship. And, you know, this is why they should consider you. You did that at 17, Right. And so I was like, here you are at like 26, 27 years old, somewhere around there. And I'm like, are you going to let these people tell you no? So what I did was I looked up like the dean of the department, the admissions person. I think it was the dean, the dean of the social work department at the University of North Carolina. And I wrote him an email and I said and something along the lines of in this global society that we live in, where we are global citizens and we, you know, you are you as a university and even as a social work department, you guys are all about, you know, the idea of like we are we are part of this like globalized global world and that we need to, you know, work together to you know become stronger like all all the social work things right like I kind of threw it back out there at them and I was like in this day and age when we're global citizens you have a rule an antiquated rule that says we will not give our scholarships to international students and therefore you are denying your classroom an opportunity to experience the global world <laughs> and by not having international students in your classrooms and he wrote back and he was like, I will forward your email to the admissions officer because I think you have a point. <laughs> and so he forwarded my email to the social work admissions officer. 
And she pulled my old application, the one where they said they don't give the, the, that was when I had a, when I was still in college, the last, the senior year, when you applied to grad school, she pulled that old application because they still had it. And she was like, Oh my God, Cara, your application is wonderful. It is amazing. We will figure out how to get you a scholarship. And it was like, wow. Within that year, I didn't have to do anything else because I already had the application in other than just kind of like refresh the application. But I didn't have to like do a whole lot. And they gave me a full tuition scholarship. You know, after they had told me, we don't do this for international students. And it was because of that email. You know, and I'm just like, isn't that crazy? Yes, what a lesson for people listening of hope, of perseverance, persistence, and stepping out and taking a chance and believing that, you know, there is a possibility, even though they told me no already. That's amazing. And I don't even know what got me to, like, think that, you know, like, what was going through my mind at 26, 27, that I would be like, you know what? I go write this and that's so bold to like to write the the dean to tell him that to tell him about himself. <laughs> you know, to and their policies and their policies. To basically be like these antiquated policies in this global world, you know? And he was like, you have a point. And it was just and and you know, one of the things that social work, a tenant of our social work degree that we learned is advocacy. So that was one of the things that that they always taught us as a it was a value. It's a social work value to advocate for your clients, right? Like as a social worker, you are an advocate. You are advocating for your clients in small ways, whether it is that you're advocating um, them with like to get jobs, to get changes to the system or the structure, like we we had to think big as social workers of like, okay, how can we change or advocate for change the system, right? And so we already had that, like, it was sort of like a part of us that was ingrained in us where we had to think beyond the problem, right? Okay, so, so this is the problem, you know, if you, you're in a, in like, you're, if you're in a community and the community doesn't have access to transportation right they don't have access to public transportation that's the problem now you as the social worker how are you going to figure this out you can't be like oh well they don't have access to transportation i guess that's tough luck you now have to be the advocate to be like who do you need to speak to who's in charge who, who are who are the 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 people that are the decision makers and then you have to be bold enough to like sit in that meeting and talk to the policy makers or even be the policymaker, you know, even be the person that is going and apply, you know, running for office or running for political office so that you can be an advocate for your constituents, right? And I think that was the the catalyst for me going back to UNC and and saying to them, I'm advocating for myself now, right? Like this is me now taking that same skill that they taught us and basically me saying, you know what? Just the same way that they can talk to us about, you know, going to the government officials and, you know, standing up in a meeting and saying, this is why we need to have X, Y, Z. I could do the same thing for myself. 
And that's what I did. I became my advocate for myself. And I said, okay, this is the problem. The problem is they don't give scholarships to international students, but they are the decision makers so they could change that policy. And so I'm going to find the decision maker, which is the dean, the head of the department, and see what he says, you know, and go to him and and propose a solution, which is expand expand your policy to include us. And by expanding your policy to include international students, you're making your classroom a better space because now you're allowing people from all over the world access to not only education, but access to conversations. Like we are now able to have conversations on a different level because we come to the table with different perspectives. Our lived experiences abroad in all of these different countries that we've lived in, we're going to approach this this conversation from a different vantage point than a American who grew up in a first world country kind of thing and have all these resources and access it. We're going to approach those conversations differently. And that's yeah. valuable. Yes. Oh my goodness. So two things are coming to mind. Two things coming to mind. One is so the importance of, you know, people other international students who are considering coming to what we would call the developed world to study the Western world, or even if you were to go to the East, right, whether it's China, Japan, or anywhere else, it taking initiative and advocating for yourself is so important because I tell you, nobody, when you come here, nobody's going to call you when you mail a letter or you leave a message. You have to follow up. You have to take initiative. You have to chase things down. You have to find information. You got to read. You cannot sit around and wait for things to drop in your lap. You have got to move. If you want something, you need to take action to go after it. And so that's what you were doing for yourself. And then the advocacy part and initiative. Yes. Yes. So those two things come to mind. And, you know, as I'm listening to your story and just what a beauty, then I'm wondering, did UNC basically say, did they actually officially change the policy after allowing you in or did they go back to their original position? So now are they now accepting new students? And then they basically say, Kara is our first, you know, who wrote us and we let her in. She show us the light and the pro our policies changed after that. I'm serious. Like, do they put your picture up and say this is the students that convinced us that we were we needed to change our position and allow more diversity in our classroom? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, and this is specific to the social work department because every department has funds, and this is important to know. Like, if you're a science depart, if you're a science major, you need to find who is the science, you know, person in your department because they have different funds. So the university has funds, and then department has funds. And again, that's something that we don't know about. And the department gets to say how they how they want to disperse those funds. And so this was, I think, a department rule that they had where they they were they didn't allow international students and I think you know this is this is such a good point because I need to go back and see I need to go back and that's a good point I'm going to go back and look to make sure that it remains open to to international students because other departments especially science technology departments are very open to international students right because a lot of the 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 minds that that develop and create and invent and stuff like that comes from all over the world and so they know that right like they know that they're aware like 
for us to be like the best, even like companies like US companies who they're the top, if you think about like the top US companies that give work visas, they are likely to be in the science technology field. They're likely to be a STEM company, right? And it's because those companies want to be the best. And because they want to be the best, they're going to recruit the best minds and they don't care where you come from. <laughs> they don't care where this mind comes from. They just want the best minds in their company to help them develop this software, this product, help us think, help us be creatives, help us invent. And so this is also something to just, you know, for, for other people to be mindful of is that certain departments or certain companies are going to be more open naturally. Because they got the memo a long time ago, right? Like they got they got the intel that it is a great thing to have all the minds at the table and not just, you know, our 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 country and that's it, right? But then other, I think like the the social sciences, like what I was in, um, we we are late bloomers <laughs> to to that to 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 understanding that there is there is value in bringing diversity and these minds to the table you know and so i'm gonna follow up i'm gonna follow up and look and see yes yes because you're the first one they need to give you credit for that and i hope it's had or remained uh open and that there's some testament that they can say okay since we've opened our doors we've had this many students come through you know, we've seen the value of how it's improved our campus and 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 classroom uh, space. So, oh, what that is so beautiful! And so, got your undergrad, got into UNC. You took initiative, advocated for yourself, and then so I'm wondering, both of you got married right out of the undergrad, and so I'm thinking, well, why didn't she go through her husband? Did um, I guess he was in the same position trying to well, figure out international student too. Wow! So yeah. how did everything? Kind of, how did everything kind of come together for both of you? Where you're yeah. now here, you formed a life. You're you have children, and you're settled, and you're probably most likely you a citizen. So, how what was the journey on that road? Listen, we only became U.S. citizens last year. Are you so, serious? Yes. So it was twenty years in the making from coming to the U.S. as both of us as F one on as to on student visas, which is the F one visa. Then it was the work visa, the H-1B visa for both of us. So once he graduated, so he was on, in medical school on an F-1 visa. Then he had to do his residency on a work visa. Then after he did his residency, he too had to convince the next employer <laughs> that you will you you want to file for my green card, right? And because he is a, a medical doctor, their category because there's different categories of filing for green cards, right? And so he was like in category one or category two because he was a doctor. And I would have been like in category three, you know, because I was just a mere social worker, right? And so yes, they yes. categorize the the time frame of so if you're in a high category, you get your visa, you get your what you call it, the green card. You get that green card in like one to two years ish right but if you're in like category four which is like the family category that takes like 15 years you know or more right and so thankfully 
when 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 he graduated from medical school he he had to take a job that was willing to file for his not only his work visa but also his green card and essentially for a lot of doctors who are in also international students you don't necessarily get to go or you don't necessarily get to be like oh i want to live in atlanta georgia or i want to live in you know, Durham, North Carolina, you just basically have to be like, where (laughs) on this giant USA map has a place that is willing to take, uh, to file for me, to file for my visa, to file for my work visa and my green card. And it was May 2006, because he was graduating June, and not 2006, sorry, 2013, he was graduating residency from his fellowship and straight Duke. He went to Duke university in North Carolina and Duke did not file for their international. So they brought international residents to the psychiatry program, but they did not keep them because they, the the university did not want to file for H1B visas and the, thing so Duke wasn't an option for him to stay and so he had to look everywhere and we ended up in Tallahassee Florida and at that point I couldn't even spell Tallahassee I'm like where is Tallahassee this was like my Benedict story was like where is Benedict it was the same thing where is Tallahassee how do you even spell Tallahassee who is Tallahassee apparently Tallahassee is the capital of Florida if you didn't know Um, but it's like a very country town. It's not a it's not a city like Atlanta or DC or Miami. It's a very, very, very small town. So we ended up in Tallahassee for two years because the hospital that he worked for was willing to file for his um work visa. And then simultaneously, we were trying to get to Miami because that was our kind of quote unquote dream location. Miami, Florida, if we could look on the map of USA, let's go to Miami because we're thinking Miami would mean Caribbean culture, easy flights to home, cheaper flights to home, being able to, you know, see family more. This is what, this is why we idealized Miami in our heads. So we were like, okay, Tallahassee is going to be our pit stop to Miami. And he had contacted one of his um, former Duke um, residents who was living in Miami and had a private practice in Miami. And he was the one that actually started the green card process. And so once about two years into being in Tallahassee, the green card came through. And once we got the green card, cause he's in category one. So his, <laughs> his green card is like faster than everybody else. I think category one or two. So his so once you're in a higher category, and this again applies to like people who are actors, or you're an athlete, or you're a doctor, or you know some high level, you know of you know how they categorize you, they make your green card faster. They allow the the application process is faster. So his was two years, and so we got that going, and we moved to Miami, and so once he got his green card, I got my green card as the spouse. And so it was when we moved to Miami and that was in 20, 
15, we moved to Miami. So we, I came, he came into the U.S. in 1999. I came in 2003. And in 2015, we got the green card. So 2015 is like the first year where we don't have to jump through <laughs> all the immigrant hoops of, okay, getting a visa, making sure that, and the other thing about a work visa is that you could only work for the company that sponsored your visa. So because I had a work visa for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, it, I couldn't go and get a part-time job at JCPenney, right? Like that would be considered working illegally. And the same for him, you know, like whatever job that sponsors his visa is like, that's the job that you work at. You have no options to work anywhere else unless that person or place wants to sponsor your visa. So you're you're limited to that organization. And but once you have your green card, you're free. It's like we go from like, you know, you only have one option. <laughs> so now it's like you have a green card and it's like, it feels like you you could really now spin the globe, the U.S. globe, and be like, okay, where where do we want to go? And after we lived in in Miami for about two and a half years, we were like, okay, you know what? This is not what we thought it was. Like we thought it was going to be, you know, Caribbean community and being able to you know experience more Caribbean culture. But we lived in South Miami, and in that area, it was more Cuban. Hispanic and I was I was I couldn't find my Caribbean people <laughs> and so it was and it was a hard community to tap into it was it was even though they are very communal they are very communal with themselves <laughs> and so it was a hard community to be like hello would you be my friend and it felt isolating living in Miami and so we decided you know what let's let's try Atlanta let's see if we will be able to you know, build our community better in Atlanta. And we moved to Atlanta in 2018. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world, and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe, and share with your friends, family, and circle of influence.